When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, bookcasers. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson. Her father have been for quite some number of years. <laughs> 47 of them total, Whoa. actually. 47. Because, you know, if it was less years than that, that would be really strange because I'm 47. So that would be weird. I hope you will stay with us. It is our second to last dark fiction show. I've decided we're not going to call it horror anymore. It just implies too much negative stuff. So we are in our second to last dark fiction show. I'm really excited because today we're talking to Stephen Graham Jones, writer of My Heart is a Chainsaw, The Only Good Indians, Don't Fear the Reaper. He's relatively new to the scene, but he's been widely celebrated. And I think he's the first dark fiction author that we've talked to that brings so much of his identity and where he comes from to what he writes. And I think it adds another dimension to what he writes. You had me read some that I would consider horror. <laughs> that business about a chainsaw certainly indicates <laughs> that you're going to read a book that's going to be tough. But you also had us read The Only Good Indians. And I didn't really think that was, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I thought it was a little bit in the element of the supernatural, mm -hmm. but I didn't think it was horror at all. It's about a, a hunter who has killed an elk and the elk in a different form comes back to take retribution. And I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a really interesting story. And what he has to say about it in our conversation, I found really interesting as well. Yeah, the way he interweaves sort of indigenous themes into his work is really something. And again, I think you're right. I think some of his work falls squarely in the slasher horror category. So if you're looking to avoid those, that would be my heart as a chainsaw and don't fear the reaper. But if you're interested in sort of a spiritual dark fiction read that isn't about violence necessarily, The Only Good Indians is a really good book. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought so too. And kept me guessing until the end. Yeah. It's a good mystery will do. Although it's not, I wouldn't put it in the category of mystery. I think it's, you're right. It's just, a, as I say, a book with a, some elements of supernatural in it. And I think also it's worth, before we start this conversation, just to say, if you are going to pick up Stephen Graham Jones, please don't put the book down when it says the end. Read the acknowledgments. They're wonderful. He doesn't just say, thank you to my agent. Thank you to my wife. Thank you to my son. He writes about his literary influences and he writes about I mean, he even writes about things that he likes that isn't an influence in what he's writing now. He just writes about stuff he likes. And boy, I liked renting videos from the video. They're like, they're almost narrative essays. Doesn't he think one of the video clerks or something yes. at the store where he used to rent movies on Friday nights? Yes. And I worked at a video store and I remember those plastic clamshell video boxes. And, and I just love his acknowledgments. And to me, in some ways, they're almost as good as the books themselves. Like I'm always interested to see how he pays tribute to his amazing wife, Nancy, which he always ends with. So if you read his books, please read it all the way through the acknowledgments. <laughs> you told me, which I thought was interesting. You said a couple of the books are sort of lovely letters to horror. Yes. That seems like a contradiction in terms. Well, horror has a following and it has a little bit of a culture. The first person who really pointed out horror culture was Wes Craven in the Scream movies. There's that scene where one of them is sitting in front of a group of kids and he's literally talking about the rules of a horror film. 
don't have sex, don't drink, don't do drugs, because you'll be the first one gone. The <laughs> final girl, the final girl or the last boy standing is usually the one who is pure of heart and hasn't done anything bad and blah, 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 blah. And so I love the idea that he's playing with those conventions the same way that Wes Craven does. A horror fans love it when you point out what we love. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one other thing, uh, Stephen Graham Jones will talk about the fact, which I think is an interesting thing for a horror writer to write about or to talk about. He said the world has turned into a horror show and therefore horror needs closure in a book. And he feels he needs to give that to a writer because Lord knows we would like some closure to some of the horrors that are going on in the world right now. And the other thing he makes reference to, you ask him about, are we afraid of different things in different era? And he talks about, he, he wouldn't be surprised if there is AI horror to come. Oh, yeah, I bet. I think that's probably. I bet. Horror writers write what the public is scared of. And I think AI being on the horizon the way that it is, we'll see a lot of good good horror fiction yeah, about it. Yeah, I think that's true. Anyway, our conversation, our conversation with Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen Graham Jones, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I've read a lot of your work. I would put a few of your books directly within the horror category. My Heart is a Chainsaw, uh, Don't Fear the Reaper, Night of the Mannequins. But I feel like there are some books that exist right on the border. So I guess my question for you is how do you define horror and do you feel like your work fits within that category. You know, I think a lot of my work does, yeah, but you're correct. Some of it doesn't. I've written procedural novels. I've written thrillers. I've written kind of absurd comedy novels. <laughs> I mean, it, it, all, it all has an element of horror to me, but um, as for what horror is, as far as I'm concerned, horror is that which kind of longs to disturb. It wants to, like if there's a can of paint, horror was to put its finger in and swirl it around and mess it up, you know? <laughs> and I'm not sure, like, not, I don't think all horror sees, like, that it's going to improve things. I think there probably is some horror. I think in all fields, there's some art that doesn't really look to build back up. It looks to tear down. Like, I think that's the difference in generative and degenerative satire. Like, generative satire says, this is all terrible. I'm going to make fun of it until it falls down. And nothing else is going to take its place because that would just be another institution and that would be bad, you know? But generative is like, I'm going to tear it down and replace it with something better, you know? And that's probably, if if I can like subscribe or long for either type of horror, almost the type of horror that is going to break down people's, I don't know, sleep patterns, I guess. And then <laughs> then hopefully inst instill a little kernel of hope in them. That's what I want. That's, real, that's what horror is really about for me is hope. Really? That's interesting. Give me a definition of how horror can engender hope like the the slasher in particular which is, seems to be what i write the most is about somebody in a mask and a machete coming after a group of people for whatever complicated reason and one person makes it through the night or the weekend or the reunion or the you know whatever it is the family the thing and they fight and struggle and sacrifice pieces of themselves to make it through this dark tunnel to get to the light again and that one person if one person can prevail against these overwhelming odds, then I have to think that someone reading this story can feel heartened. They can feel like, you know, that's a model for how I can resist all the negative forces in my life. Katie defined, which I thought was a good line, a couple of your books as being sort of love letters uh -huh. to horror fans. Uh -huh. I think a couple of your books are supernatural, like The Only Good Indians. Uh -huh. I don't find that scary. I just find it inventive. What, to your mind, crosses the line 
that gets it into and you can put it in the genre of horror. And actually, I'll, no, 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 I'll add one more thing to that, which is I think that also there's a line in Stephen's work between ghosts and a spirituality. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, with Mapping the Interior, my little novella, talking about ghosts, with that one, to, to answer answer what you're talking about, about Mr. Gibson, to me... Charlie, uh, Charlie, Char- Charlie. Uh, Charlie, <laughs> Charlie, Charlie, I felt like that, that that was me trying to do a ghost story. And my, my issue with ghosts has always been that they're not scary. Like, all a ghost can really do to you is give you some information you don't want or stutter you in the hallway and make you drop your cup of coffee or something like that. You know? <laughs> and, and so with Mapping the Interior, I made it where the ghost is slowly fighting his way back to corporality so he can actually engage with the world in a physical way. Mm-hmm. And to me, the first like 70% and maybe 80% of that, of that is what you're talking about. It's supernatural, but it doesn't necessarily steal your sleep away. To me, that novella doesn't become horror until the last movement of it, where it's years after the events. But in the last little movement of that novella, it gets kind of uncomfortable, you know? And I, I never planned that to happen. But to me, that's where the horror is, is that last, that last movement. Christopher Golden talked a little bit about what he felt he owed his audience, that he owed them sort of a happy ending, but also, uh, but I'm still really uncomfortable with what I've learned. What do you feel like you owe your audience in a novel? And what do you feel like you owe your audience in, say, like one of your short stories or novellas? That's, that's a good distinction, because I think a novel, what I, with a novel, what I owe my audience is some sort of redemption at the end of some sort. It doesn't have to be a clear happy ending. It can be a very qualified happy ending. Because, I mean, yeah, if a final girl makes it through the class reunion alive, that's great for her. But, you know, 47 other people died, all her friends and families and pets and teachers. And so it's, it's hard to call that a happy ending, you know? Um, but, um, but with a short story, I feel like I can leave everybody dead on the floor after 12 or 22 pages. And I don't feel that guilty because the reader has, has engaged 30 minutes of their time. And yeah. but with a the novel, they've engaged six or 10 hours of their time. And so I feel like I owe them some redemption. And, mm. and, you're, and you mentioned a novella. And those, to me, kind of occupy a middle space a little bit. Mm. I guess both my latest two novellas, Night of the Mannequins and Map of the Interior, they are both built more like short stories to me. They're just short stories mm. that, like Thomas Pynchon says of Crying a Lot 40, 49, they have a glandular problem, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I like that. I like that. It feels like there's a little bit of a renaissance in horror right now where people are bringing more of their identities and their stories to horror. I'm thinking about like Sylvia Morena Garcia, Jordan Peele, Parasite was a, was a great uh-huh. social. T- I mean, uh-huh. do you feel like so that horror is going through a bit of a renaissance because people are bringing social justice to it or they're bringing their own identities to it? Feels like horror is getting deeper yeah. than it was. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And you're right about, I think, what was Get Out? That was 20, maybe 16. And then very, very shortly after that, Victor Raval did The Ballad of Black Tom. And I feel like those two works, you know, one on the bookshelf, one at the box office, they kind of kicked the door open and told the world, hey, we're not just a little weird nightmare carnival out here at the edge of the light doing our own blood gags for each other. We're actually (laughs) talking about issues that matter, that the world is dealing with right now, allowing other voices to be at the center, you know? And that was wonderful. And I think a whole lot of people have come through the door since like those two books, and I'm sure others like kicked the door open. And I think that's, that's quite wonderful. But 
it's, that's not solely responsible for this like upswell of horror either. I think a big component or a big contributing factor has been that the world has kind of turned into a horror show. And when the world is horror, I think we like horror in our media. So people are trying to engage stories that have closure at the end. They have endings so they can see that there's closure in their own horror story, the pandemic, the current political regime, whatever it is. That's one of the things I think is fascinating about horror is horror sort of mirrors what we as a as a society are frightened of. You know, in the 1950s, you had the atomic bombs, you had giant insects and you had body snatchers. And, yeah. and then in the 90s, we were frightened of serial killers and up came yeah. Hannibal Lecter. I wonder what the horror that we're putting out right now says about what we are frightened of. It seems like there's a whole lot of social media, Internet, phone related horror, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that really scares us because. We're all dependent upon our devices and dependent upon, like, the internet is how we get connectivity with other people, basically. And so when those channels become um, dangerous and polluted and corrupt, that's quite disturbing for us. And I think a step beyond that, which we're getting to, like, people always say that the horror, like, fad kind of modulates back from vampires to werewolves and back and forth, you know, and, like, mummies are never (laughs) on the top and werewolves are never on top, which is kind of sad because I love werewolves. (laughs) I do think if we're gonna if we're gonna step into another like um, horror terrain, that it might be artificial intelligence because I think that's a step mm-hmm. up. That's like a I think all this social media, cell phone, internet horror is gonna slowly morph into artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. This podcast, somewhat to the surprise of Kate and me, has turned into sort of a masterclass of writing. And one huh? of the things we've gotten fascinated by is where the novel starts. And in the case of horror, do you start with what you want the reader to be afraid of and then cast a story around that? Or do you start with a story that's in your mind and inject horror into it? Do you start with character, place, what? I start with what I am afraid of mostly. And if I can make what I'm afraid of scare me on the page and there's a chance it might disturb someone else like the only indians is probably a good example of that back in this must have been 2006 i was living in texas i was hunting up on the reservation in montana i got a cow elk i got her processed brought her home put her in my freezer and whenever i take an animal in the field i always promise that i know this was terrible but i'm gonna use all of you you're gonna feed my family and all that stuff and I'm, i I promise them that you're not gonna go to waste you know and I don't think that matters to this dead animal. I think it was still terrible for them to get shot. I don't pretend like that cleanses me of my involvement, but I feel less guilty if we're going to use it all, you know, if we're all going to eat it. And so I had her in my freezer. And then suddenly three or four months later, I was moving to Colorado and I was going to be homeless for the summer, like bouncing around to different family members' homes. And I couldn't bring a freezer of meat with me. So I put on, <laughs> I put on a big couple of bags and went up and down the street I lived on and gave away roasts and, you know, sausage and ground, ground elk and all that stuff. And it felt pretty good about myself. But then I landed in Colorado and I started getting the, the suspicion that I had broken my promise to that elk because what if someone accepted the roast I handed them at the door and once that door closed they threw it away because they didn't trust me and why would they trust me you know and I lived with that for a decade I couldn't stop thinking about what if I broke my promise and that question became not simply what if I broke my promise but what do I deserve for breaking my promise and so then I wrote The Only Good Indians about shooting the elk and I was able to make it particular to my fears in a way that allowed other people to access it, I I hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you write in your acknowledgments about discovering horror and knowing that was going to be your life. And you write in your acknowledgments about discovering literature and the English teachers who saw you, but you don't write about the time that those two got smashed together. Like, when did you realize that you were going to, when you were like writing horror, writing horror? Yeah, no, that was, you know, when I came to grad school, I never planned to go to grad school, but my professors in undergrad convinced me to do it. And so just to satisfy them, I put out a couple applications and ended up in grad school. But the deal I made with myself to go to grad school was you can go, but you have to be in pirate mode. You're only going to steal stuff. You're going to steal (laughs) crap that you can port out to Western science fiction, horror, fantasy, to the genres you love. That was the deal that I made if I'm going to sell my soul to grad school. And (laughs) so I went to grad school and, you know, of course you get, you get sidetracked. And I ended up in John Barth land and um, Thomas Pynchon land and Gerald Bissner land. And those are great lands to be in. I don't regret that at all, but they're not horror. And so my dissertation was the, it became the novel, The Fast Red Road. And that's not horror. It's, I don't, know, I don't know what it is. It's like a big cartoon. It's not necessarily reality, but it's not quite horror. It, I mean, it could be American Indian horror because this it's kind of a post-apocalyptic thing. But I felt like after I wrote The Fast Red Road, I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I was supposed to come here to steal stuff to bring it back to my genre. <laughs> so the very next novel I wrote, this would have been 99, I guess. I sat down and I wrote the novel that became Demon Theory. And that, to me, felt like a coming home. Like, oh, this is what I'm meant to be doing. You fell in love with horror movies. Yeah. So, and, and to me, writing horror books is, you don't get the music, you don't get the ketchup blood, you don't get the shiny knives. Like, you do, but you only get them in your head. Like, isn't it, I mean, yeah. were you ever like, I should be a filmmaker, that would be easier? <laughs> Man, where I grew up, you, the only two options available for guys was oil field work or farming. <laughs> filmmaker was so far out there, and writer was just as far out there, so I had... I never have dreamed of being a filmmaker. That is not within the field of things that are possible to me, even now. You know, people ask me, do I want to do it? And No, I don't. I just want to write books. <laughs> That's what I do. But yes, you're right. My, my first engagement with horror was, what, eighth grade, finding all the slashers and the, and the clamshell video cases at the, the rental store. Kate makes a really interesting point, and we've talked about this a lot, that, that the movie maker does have so many things at his disposal that he can use to scare you. You only have words. That's all you have, which makes it, it seems to me, much tougher to do what it is you want to do, which is to scare people and then find some redemption or whatever. But you're limited with words. Yeah. You know, as far as the stimulus response reaction, you're right. Filmmaking has the screechy violin or the flashing lights. All that. They, they can startle you a whole lot better, but for my money, and maybe it's because I'm a born reader, but um, I feel like giving somebody real estate in your mind for six or eight hours, you can do some stuff. You know, you can plant some dark eggs that are going to hatch at three in the morning. And <laughs> and people, when they watch movies, they have their defenses up. They're looking for the costume on the monster's back so they don't have to be scared. When people read a novel, they don't necessarily have those same defenses up. They are willingly trying to believe in this. And that gives you a leg up, I think. You know, you can't do a score, but you can modulate your prose rhythm. You can modulate your sentence length. And you can, you have different ways of achieving a lot of the same things that other media do. And the the big important thing is, with a novel, that can be nearly 100% mine. Seems to me a horror novel, you have to get into the world that the writer creates. So you need to read it in long chunks, it seems to me. The reader who gets into bed and reads four pages and falls asleep and then reads four pages the next night, isn't. it's not going to work for that person. How a person reads 
a horror novel, it seems to me, will be largely determinant of whether it's successful. No, that's a good point. The trick is those readers who just want to read four pages kind of as a soporific to make them, you know, fall asleep. The trick is to stage things on the page such as they have to read six pages and then eight pages. Like, don't let them put it down at four pages. And if you can do that, if you can make them occupy that liminal space between sleep and dream with your words, then you can leech your way into their dreams. And that's wonderful, I think. But but you're right. Movies can do jump scares better than horror novels because movies can control the pace. With a horror novel, you don't control the pace. If they see the tension ratcheting up too high, they can close the book and go look out the window for five minutes and come back and they're reset. And they're not going to mm-hmm. be scared when they see the monster or whatever happens, you know? So you have to trick them with feints and jokes and it's like a switchback trail going off the mountain you've got to stage a cat in the closet at this door and you've got to stage a sock that looks like a monster foot at this door and that keeps the reader off balance or wrong footed such that when you do spring the monster division the terror on them they can be legitimately surprised and that's what i love to do i love the like mechanical aspect of that i wanted to ask you a little bit about the horror community one thing christopher golden said is i think part of the reason that we're a community is because if you get into writing this genre the chances are you might be going through something you're working Mm. through something Mm -hmm. working through some darkness do you think that's true you know what i mean in the sense that we all are for sure and you know, I feel like there is a lot of solidarity in the horror community, and the reason for that is those of us who are in the horror community now have been horror fans 30, 40 years, you know, easily. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, horror was on the outside looking in, and we were all standing at a fence, a chain link fence, just watching the party go on, you know, and, and you do that long enough, and you start talking to the person beside you and you realize that we're all outcasts, but we're outcasts together, you know? And that feels really good to, to, have, <laughs> yeah. to have people. It's like in high school, you find yeah. your group, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, Stephen Graham Jones, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. We have struggled to define horror. We've just struggled about the values of horror. You have. I have not. Well, but I, I, think he, <laughs> I, think, I think Stephen sums it up very well in my heart as a chainsaw. Can't I just like horror because it's great? Does there have to be some big explanation? I think that's a, a very good way to define it. Good to talk to you. We thank you for joining us in the bookcase. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Rapid fire questions for Stephen Graham Jones. Scariest movie you've ever seen? 
Oh, I'm going to say Paranormal Activity. That movie stole a lot of sleep mm. from me. By the way, in your acknowledgments, you talk a lot about Halloween. Yeah. How did you feel? What did you think the first time you saw it? I can't clearly remember the first time I saw it, which is terrible because I think it was in that stack of VHS tapes we would rent on Friday nights when I was in eighth grade. And I just can't remember the first time I saw it. I remember the most excellent time I saw it was when I rented a car. I was doing a book event in Midland, Texas, my home, about 15 years ago. And I rented a car and went out to a drive-in and watched Halloween. I was one of the only cars there. And it had been a full day of interviews. And I kept falling asleep and waking up in Halloween. And it was just such a wonderful experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. There's something about the live experience of a movie. I saw Scream 3 at midnight Uh, in New York City, and it was so much fun. (laughs) One of the things we think people, if they read your novels, don't miss the acknowledgments. When you write acknowledgments, (laughs) what do you want to do with those? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wish I could lay claim to long acknowledgments, but there's a guy named Michael Martone. He used to publish a lot of really short stories and in journals and you would flip back to his like contributor notes and they would be like five pages of notes for a two page story. <laughs> and he finally consolidated all those into a collection and it was so fun. But um, what do I want to do? I just want to, when the dramatic line of a novel closes, I think it's a writer's job, job to get out the door, to not do these long goodbyes, not go back and clean up the Shire and all that stuff. But I think that the acknowledgements are me just trying to hang on a little more because I like being in this world. Oh, I love it. I love it. At one point, you even say thank you to a writer where you were like, I love what you did here. And I tried it. And it turns out I can't do it. I, like, I love that you even, you even thank that person. I love that. But you end each acknowledgement with a tribute to your wife, Nancy. Oh, yeah. Yes. Which is very yeah. nice. But I wonder if you're feeling you need to make amends to her in some way. Yeah. <laughs> did you do something? Yeah. In the third book. Now, in the third book, what I want you to do is just Nancy. Dot, dot, dot. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, question no. mark. I know. Uh, yeah. That'd be yeah, funny. No, um, but I'm just very indebted to her because I wouldn't be doing any of this without her. So I'm just eternally thankful and lucky to be with her, I think. I have a theory, but I want to know your opinion. Are horror writers fearless or are they scared of everything? You know, I can only speak for myself. I am scared of everything. And I think Paul Tremblay says that as well. We are two. Maybe that's why we're such good friends because we're both actually scared. I've been on panels with a lot of novelists where people will ask, do you still still get scared of stuff? And they say, no, I understand the mechanism. I know how the spring works and how the trap works. So because I recognize the mechanism, it can't affect me anymore. But that is not the case for me. I get terrified. I think if I ever stop being scared, I'll stop writing horror. Uh, When somebody (laughs) like me is trepidatious about reading horror, what would you say is the first novel, the gateway novel that I should read? Yeah, somebody's kind of weary about horror. I might start with, I think Sarah Grant's Come Closer, maybe. That's a good one. I think that's legitimately scary but it's presented almost in a comic tone. So it's a fun intersection of two different modes and it's super short too. Advice you would give a horror writer starting out? Write about what scares you. If like, Don't look up that list of what everybody is scared of. Spiders, snakes, drowning, burning, loss of a loved one. Those are generals and they, they'll have a place in your story probably. But like myself, a nightmare I continue to have is I fall down some basement stairs and I get to the bottom and I didn't knock me out, but I got kind of hurt. And I look at my arm 
and it's like broken open a little bit and instead of blood and bone inside it's like white tofu and that terrifies me to know it. and, <laughs> and um th- it terrifies me that i'm not real you know and so my novel the babysitter lives that's all about that and i've written a few stories about that i'm trying to like divest myself or exercise that from my brain it never seems to work it just gets higher resolution you know maybe you're just really frightened of tofu <laughs> no i love tofu <laughs> Did you ever think of that like maybe it's a tofu thing like i don't uh, know maybe maybe in a, a previous life I drowned in a vat of tofu or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, And the last question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we find it very illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Hanging with my family. I love that. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. It really has. Yeah, really interesting. It's been so great. Our conversation with Stephen Graham Jones. I think my favorite part of that conversation is that Stephen Graham Jones considers himself an optimist. The idea that a slasher film is optimistic just because there's one person standing at the end and they're, you know, I mean, just I picture this person standing and there's bodies everywhere, you know, pets, parents, everything. And, you know, there's one person standing and Stephen Graham Jones looks at that as optimistic. I just, (laughs) I love that. Well, one of the things we have started to do is to ask authors what is their favorite bookstore, uh, independent bookstore, of course. And Stephen lives in Colorado, and his favorite bookstore is uh, one that actually I have heard of. Here is Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookshop. Arson Kashkashian, it's good to talk to you. I can't help but note that the Boulder Bookstore is about to have its 50th 5-0 anniversary with a celebration. What are you doing? Well, we're going to have a big party on Sunday, September 17th, where we're going to have 32 different authors in the store, including uh, Stephen Graham Jones, who I believe you've had on your show, and also many other local authors. And we're doing some other events leading up to it as we hit it, like a book club night, which we haven't done since the pandemic hit, which was a big favorite for our audiences. So we're going to have a poetry open mic night to invite the community. So just lots of different events where we invite the community. But that party on Sunday, you know, I think we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of people. We better because we're getting cake for 300 people. So (laughs) it's going to be a lot of cake in the staff room if if they don't show up. I was just about to quote Julia Child and ask you if you were going to have cake because Julia's famous quote is, a party without cake is just a meeting. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with that. We've talked to so many bookstores. A lot of them would love to be open 50 years. So if you were going to like sum up the secret, what's the secret? Well, I think I think I'd like to say it's hard work and everything. And it is. It is a lot of hard work. But, you know, it's a little bit like real estate location, location, location. We've got a great location. Mm. The store was founded in 1973. And just a few years after that, the street that the store is on was made into a walking mall. maybe the most popular walking mall in the country. And obviously that helped an awful lot. We're in an old historic building. that's just a beautiful building, but we've been nimble. We've been willing to change a lot. We, when the chains came in, we got a bigger space so we could do events. We've, you know, had to beat back Amazon over the years. And so we've been willing to try different things. They haven't all worked, but we're willing to keep looking to reinvent the business and keep it fresh as you know, all the time. Mm. So whether it's the physical space or whether it's what we're doing with inventory or events, we're always trying to look at what can we do better, keeping it, you know, new. You have 20,000 square feet, I saw, to display books. We just talked to somebody with 600 square feet who is starting a bookstore. Tell me 
how you allocate the space and what in your community is the most popular space in the store? Well, the store is, like I said, seven different rooms. We have two rooms on the main floor, the street level floor, and we have the children's room and we have kind of the room that has the new books and the Colorado books and the recommended books. And that's kind of the featured rooms. But there's all sorts of rooms. I think a lot of the locals' favorite room is what's called the Upper North Room. And that's the room that has spirituality in it, has psychology, has Buddhism, which Boulder has a big Buddhist community. We sell meditation cushions up there. And it just has a very quiet feel to it. And I think for the local audience, that's kind of their favorite room in a way. That's And a lot of people, we get a lot of tourists coming through here and they never even make it up to that room. You got to go up <laughs> some stairs, you got to go around the bend, you got to go down some other stairs, you know, so that's maybe sometimes the secret room. But I think that speaks to a lot of what we have a lot of therapists in Boulder, which means we probably have a lot of patients, but we also have a lot of uh, <laughs> but uh, Buddhism, we have the Shambhala Temple is just right around the corner from us. So those are topics that really resonate with our community. I get the sense you said the word local a lot and you've got 32 authors coming in for your 50th birthday. So I'm interested. It sounds like local authors are a really big part of your bread and butter and that Colorado readers like to read Colorado. We were introduced to you via Stephen Graham Jones, the amazing horror author who I love. But who are some of your other favorite local authors that you guys stock and sell? Well, Peter Heller is in Denver, and but we consider he does it. We do events with him every time he has a book. We just did one for his new book, The Last Ranger. That was really a wonderful book. T.A. Barron, of course, on the children's side is probably the all that he's done more events at our store than any other author in history. We've done over 25 events with T.A. Barron, so he's definitely a favorite. You know, I think that there's, there's all sorts of people. Laura Pritchett is a great author, she's up north of us a little bit, but she comes in when she's got a new book and she'll have one next spring. So we're looking forward to that. She's a novelist. There's just a plethora of people that have, have books here. It's, it's, it's really incredible. One after the other, I'm doing Ramona Ausubel has a wonderful book called The Last Animal that came out in the spring. She lives right here in Boulder. So it's, it's one after the other. And we're, we're really blessed. Wasn't Allen Ginsberg a resident of Boulder? Yeah. Ginsberg was one of the founders of the Naropa College, Naropa Institute, and that's still going. And we've had a partnership with them for many years. Ginsburg, I met him when he did his last event here, probably in 94 or so. I'm trying to, I'm guessing on the year, maybe 93. But he frequently came through even when he didn't live here. And he was a big presence. And David, the owner of the store, David Bolduke, knew Ginsburg quite well. So Arison, what are you excited about this fall? What are you putting in customers' hands? Well, I liked the book by Catherine Lacey called The Biography of X. I thought that was an amazing book. It was a novel put out by FSG, came out in the spring. Lacey's one of my favorite authors. I read her collection of short stories. And so this novel really captured my imagination. It was about an artist set in like the 70s and 80s in America. But it's an America that's been changed because in her world, the South left the Union in 1947, I believed, and is now a walled off theocracy. And so the book's action is taking place in the late 90s, and it's, uh, it's when the wall is coming down, which coincided with some other walls coming down. So I thought that was a really creative and interesting book that I really loved. I'm also recommending Peter Heller's new book, The Last Ranger, which is set in Yellowstone Park. And he's taking a look at the wolf's reintroduction there and how, how that's affected the park 
how that's affected the communities around the park, and just kind of all the, the beauty, but also the craziness of Yellowstone, where you have people trying to have their five-year-old kids feed a, a baby moose. You know, that's probably a bad idea. So um, I really enjoyed that book. We have talked to so many now independent bookstores because we believe in the criticality of independent bookstores. But I'm curious, we've talked to some that are in university towns, some that aren't. Since independent bookstores depend so much on community support, and you just mentioned one of the things you had to sort of fend off was attacks from things like Amazon and whatever. People were, you know, I would, I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, people all the time said, I saw this book in your store, but I wasn't sure if I wanted it. But then I got it on Amazon. Like that was a good thing. You know, people were saying that all the time, you know, and I'm like, well, we, we can't really pay our rent if you keep doing that. You know, so, so even in a university town, you still had to really make that argument. Arson Kashkashian, thank you ever so much. Yeah. The Boulder Bookstore, you'll find it on Pearl Street in the Pearl Street Mall on that pedestrian mall, which is very popular apparently in Boulder, and you should stop by and see Arson when you're there. Yeah. If the pictures are representative, you guys are looking pretty good for 50. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Arson Keshkashian of the Boulder Bookshop, right on the pedestrian walkway in Boulder, Colorado. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say happy 50th birthday to them. It just, it's an amazing space. And I look forward to going out there and being able to wander and peruse. It looks terrific. So a reminder of the great folks that make the podcast possible. And then a little coda from Stephen Graham Jones. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. I'll put Alan Everson. I play with my heart first because that's all I've got.